sticks in your head. an important question. It's uh, quite often the first question that we ask, certainly the first thing that's on any form that you have to fill out, they ask for your name. And it tells us quite a bit, a surprising amount, about a person just to know their name. Your last name maybe tells us um, who you're associated with, your ethnicity, uh, your clan. Perhaps you're even related to someone famous because they share the same last name. Anybody here related to someone famous who Yes? Shirley Temple. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, just because. Yeah, maybe you didn't even get a t-shirt from her. But, yeah. Um, yeah, well, that's, that's, uh, that's fun. Um, there was a George Reed of Delaware who signed the Declaration of Independence. Um, I think I might be related to him. I haven't directly traced it, but I know my family came from New England. Some of you, maybe, um, are you named from, like, you know that your first name comes from a Greek or Hebrew root? Anybody? Okay, good, good. Anybody named after a Bible character? You know that you, um, yes, good. Um, some of us, more coincidentally, there's somebody in the Bible. That, but sometimes parents, you know, purposely choose a name like that. Anybody named after someone else? Maybe somebody in your family or someone who's, to be a role model for you and maybe your parents and said, this is what we want you to grow into. Does anybody here have a unique name that no one, as far as you know, has? Anybody? What is yours? Mine's Jeffrey, but it's spelled weird. Okay, <laughs> spelled weird. So W-E-I-R-D. <laughs> that is unusual. <laughs>
thing is a certain mark of ownership. Have you thought about that? Like, it's only a good friend that can give you a name that can stick, you know? And uh, foster parents aren't allowed to name their children, but you become an adoptive parent and you can declare a name. We name our pets, you know? It's a, it's a mark of our ownership on them. And so if you've been given even a nickname by someone, take note, they are invested in you in some particular way. They know something about you, and they're calling something out. Perhaps it's something noble. In any case, they're calling something out in you. But you can be sure that whenever uh, God, whenever Jesus would give someone a nickname, it was to call out something important in them. Jesus' own name is uh, Jehovah's salvation. Jehovah saves. And so his own purpose and destiny was contained within his name, and God was the one who said what he was to be named. What I want to tell you today about a uh, time in Mark chapter 5 when Jesus asked someone, what is your name? As far as I know, it's the only time that Jesus asked somebody their name. Anybody know what, who that person would have been? Okay, good. Some people on worship team know, but thank you for withholding um, well, let's explore it. We'll call this story of pigs, pawns, and kings. Jesus went all the way across the Sea of Galilee one day to head over to the region of Gadara to have a rather odd confrontation with the devil and play a chess match with him. Chess. Chess is a game of strategy in which a player must see several moves ahead, take calculated risks, Follow a flexible, long-term plan. It requires discipline, concentration, and patience. Jesus had those qualities in abundance. But the most important thing in chess is you've got to protect your king. That's what it's all about. You can give up every other player, but the king is the only one that matters. In chess, the way I see it, the taller the piece, the better. Um, the pawn is this little tiny piece, and then the others get taller, and eventually the king is the tallest one. So you've got to know the difference between a pawn and a king. Always give up the little old pawn in order to keep the big old king. That's the way you win. So they had set sail, and Jesus pointed them southeast toward the bluff of Gadara, a relatively uninhabited region. The bluff right there was like a wall of sandstone and shale rising up from the water, pockmarked with caves that were used as tombs. <coughs> so you can imagine they clearly were not there to have a picnic. And as they approached the shore, it seems that the only sign of life there is a large herd of pigs that are up there on the top of the bluff. You've heard of pigs. <laughs> heard of Pigs. There's a pig pig here and a pig pig here as they're in a herd of pigs. And not a single one is kosher. That's important to remember. And as they anchor off the shore, they begin to wade to the narrow rocky beach. All they hear is an eerie howl from up on that bluff somewhere. Whatever was making that sound sure doesn't sound human and definitely doesn't sound safe. And Jesus hears it too, but he doesn't seem to even slow down. It's almost like he's coming there in answer to the call. 
Then the disciples see the source of the sound. It's this creepy, wild man who comes screaming down the hill, running right at the Lord with this crazed look in his eyes. He lives there among the tombs, which, of course, makes him unclean from the start. Rabbi Jesus, better be careful. So between the graves and the pigs and this man screaming toward them, the twelve are getting a collective case of the Jewish heebie-jeebies here. <laughs> but the Lord doesn't even seem to flinch. He walks right toward the man, apparently unafraid of hitting his spiritual cooties. Well, the chessboard seems to be set, and the first moves have been made. Jesus and the twelve followers on one side, and this man and a mess of pigs on the other. Seems the devil has made the first move, leading with this curious fellow. They all look him over. Short guy. Definite pawn material. Very poor personal hygiene, if I may say so. He's clearly broken, mentally, spiritually. He howls at the moon. He cuts himself with rocks. I imagine that uh, each day he raids that herd of pigs, killing and eating whatever part of a hog seems edible to him. The man is practically naked. He has iron shackles around his ankles and wrists with broken chains dangling from them, remnants of the many attempts to control him. Clearly, the man does not keep his curfew. Not even a gang to take him on. He is so strong, you might think he has supernatural strength. All the pent-up violence inside him. And this man is the one who is charging toward Jesus. I imagine perhaps with a human leg bone that he's taken from one of the tombs in his hand that he uses as a club and he has incredibly intense eyes that show insanity or worse. It's right about then that they realize what this man is screaming at the top of his voice about. He's pleading for mercy. Somehow he had known, even from a distance, that Jesus had come to deal with the demons inside him. He falls before the master and screams at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? In God's name, don't torture me. Did you notice that this man, crazy and possessed as he was, knew Jesus' name? Even the demons know him as the son of the Most High God, and they tremble. But the unclean spirits don't leave immediately like I would expect they would. They're negotiating and not immediately complying. I imagine this might take as long as an hour that Jesus has been saying, come out of that man, and they're saying, please don't send us into the pit. So Jesus changes tactics, and he says, what is your name? What is your name? As I say, this is the only time recorded, as far as I know, that Jesus asks a person his name. Not that he didn't know. But why do you suppose he'd start a conversation with this particular guy asking for his name? I guess it's like asking, so what are you all about? Where do you come from? Where are you headed? What controls you? What drives you? Summarize yourself in a word. What is your name? Or you might say, what is your condition? Have you received a diagnosis? Or 
again, what, what books have you been reading? What teaching have you been exposed to? Sometimes it's critically important that we can put it into words or into a word. What is your name? The man answered, my name is Legion, for we are many. A little creepy, isn't it? Most people who see him from the outside think he's an individual soul, but he knows, he knows that he's got many voices inside him, constantly telling him what to do, that he's filled with many demons, and the demons are all out to destroy him in a myriad of ways. This is why he runs to Jesus for mercy. Today, we seldom recognize demonic possession as such. I think we usually put names of various mental illnesses and psychotic conditions. And if we did, this man would be a veritable alphabet soup of conditions. And he's a victim held captive by every one. That's why Jesus is not afraid. He knows this man is not the enemy. This man is a victim. There are many things a demon-possessed man is not aware of, as an ordinary man might be. Time of day, physical comfort, kosher food products, to name a few. And yet, supernatural revelation isn't something that belongs only to God. Demons know the end game. Oh yeah, they know. They know who's going to win. Though they might not quite know when or how it's going to happen, they fear. And so the game unfolds, Legion and Jesus of Nazareth, one move at a time. What strikes me as unusual is so that Jesus had no doubt healed hundreds of people by this time. He cast out demons with just a word, quick and easy. Tell them to be gone. Off they go to wherever it is demons go. Cast out, it doesn't matter. He sets people free. End of game. Checkmate Jesus. But this man is a special case, as they all are. He has a name, and names matter. Because names provide our identities as well as our destinies. This game he's playing seems confusing. I imagine Jesus taking all this time to identify each of those demons, perhaps, by name, and somehow allowing them to negotiate terms for this man's relief. What is going on here? Jesus having mercy on demons now? If this is a chess match, it seems like Jesus has already given up a lot of ground in order to save this one unkempt pawn here. Maybe the devil's smiling just a mite. This match is going his way. At last, the legion of demons look around for someplace local where they all can hide out for a while. So instead of sending us to the pit, what? How about do you send us into the pigs? They're begging Jesus. Jesus agrees. He gives a one-word command, go, or they must leave. For it was his name that spoke. They enter the pigs. The man is free for the first time, and whenever they can see it in his eyes, hear it in his voice, he's at peace, his sanity at last. Jesus smiles. He done saved Shorty. 
happens to a, uh, when a demon enters a pig? I'll tell you, it ain't pretty. Hogs ain't pretty to begin with, but a hog filled with a demon is uh, downright nasty. So these demons follow Satan's first rule, destroy anything you inhabit. And so with the innate grace and beauty of 2,000 demon-possessed hogs, the hogs squeal and slide down the hill and to their doom down in the lake. They drown. Jesus glances over at the devil. The face twitches. He just lost the model citizen in this crazy dude, and now his board has just been cleared all in one move. Then a slow smile breaks over the face of the devil. He was thinking a move ahead, and this was all working according to his plan. He just lost him a pawn, but he's zeroing down on capturing the king from Nazareth himself. Turns out, it's written in the fine print, that demons only inhabit the pigs for the duration of the pigs' lives. And he's destroyed them all at once. So, the devil's chuckling to himself. Now he's got 2,000 of his crackerjack demons out roaming the countryside again. He turns back, he locks his hands behind his pointy head, and says, Check. Mr. Pond's finally in his right mind. They find him some clothes. He sits down, talking and in his right mind, so sober-minded he could be a judge. But the legion of demons is set free to run around the area at will. Some of them whisper into the ears of the owners of the pigs. And now it's the owner's turn to start running down the hillside straight towards Jesus again. These men had spent their entire lifetimes building up this huge herd which was worth a fortune. These pigs were their entire inventory. You do remember pigs are not kosher, right? So why would any God-fearing person raise a herd of pigs in Israel? Hint, these fellows are not God-fearing people. And everything that they valued in life has just been lost in one moment. They are might upset about it. So, now they're the ones begging Jesus, begging him to get out of their region, or threatening him, perhaps, Maybe how intense the air was right then. Old Satan leans back and he's sputtering forward and he smiles at the board. His demon's power base has only increased through this little diversion. The devil still has all his pieces on the board, save one. And now he has his opponent backed into a corner. <coughs> Looks like Jesus has gambled it all on this one guy. And now he's lost everything else. It's unbelievable. What's more, Jesus agrees to the wishes of these pig owners and the other people from the region. Without a word, he turns and climbs back into the boat. Is this a retreat in the spiritual realm? Is this how you do spiritual battle by running from the battle? You can see the loss? His reputation sure took a beating just now. It's hard to live down the label of a fortune destroyer and a pig killer, so Jesus is gone. He's traded 2,000 pigs, plus his own reputation, all for this one soul. As Jesus begins his withdrawal, Mr. Pond comes running after him, begging again. This time he begs to come along. 
After all, the demons have been plaguing him for years, and now they are alive and active in this region, and he is in danger. The boy's still spanking new in the faith, and he needs training or protection or something, at least. But Jesus tells the man, now go back home. Tell your friends and family what God did for you. And Jesus gets in the boat, and he leaves. The devil chuckles. smile fades as Jesus calls back to the boat, oh, by the way, check me. The evil one can't believe it. Over the next few weeks, Satan can only watch powerless while the holy plan unfolds. This one man of peace, whom Jesus has rescued, heads back home and tells his family and friends about it all. And the testimony of one changed life Bring spiritual revival to the whole country. Amen. In fact, a few months later, it says, when Jesus returns to the area, that the Lord does many miracles, because in the region of these ten towns of Decapolis, this one former demoniac turned evangelist has piqued a spiritual interest in everybody. Perhaps even the former pig owner. That's right. You might say that a legion of people were brought to the Lord through the testimony of this one man formerly known as Legion. Turns out perhaps his name meant something other than he thought. The devil had been thinking to move ahead, but our Lord is a master at spiritual chess, and he was working on a long-term strategy. See, Jesus knows that one soul is worth more than 2,000 hogs. One soul is worth more than his own reputation in a region. His reputation isn't worth any more to him than a little old pond. Satan reluctantly must admit defeat in the region for a good long time. Jesus calls back to the boat. Never, ever underestimate the value of one soul. In my book, one soul is king. His name was Legion, after all. But it took on a new meaning, for many souls were saved through him. So I ask again, what is your name? Maybe you needed to hear that story. Because maybe you lived with a name that you thought was your curse. Jesus wants to turn your name's meaning around. Maybe your name has been ugly. It's time to learn about the humility that comes from humiliation. Maybe your name, like Shorty's, is mentally ill or developmentally delayed, loser, unemployable, broken. But Jesus is here to take those broken pieces of colored glass and make a beautiful stained glass window out of it through which he can shine. Maybe you're like Simon. Simon, son of Jonah. Son of Simon Bar-Jonah. Simon, son of Jonah. Simon, son of John. Cy, to his friend. Cy Johnson. How's that? Cy Johnson. We know him as the Apostle Peter, of course. First among the Apostles, 
Pope numero uno. But when Jesus first met him, he said, your name is Simon Johnson, but you will be called Peter, which means a rock. Imagine having Jesus himself give you a name, including what the meaning of that name is going to be, that he's going to build his kingdom on you. That's one immense privilege, wouldn't you say? But with great power comes great responsibility, <laughs> as it says somewhere in the Bible. <laughs> in the book of Uncle Ben. <laughs> well, notice this bit of trivia. Jesus named Peter, and he gave him a vision that included his new name. But the Gospels record Jesus as calling him Peter only twice. Did you know that? And always in the future tense. Notice the way Jesus says it. You will be called Peter, he says, a rock that is steady and solid, true and strong. And someday, you might grow into that name, Peter. Until then, you're likely to keep acting like Simon Johnson. The calling happened in a moment, but it was a slow process to earn the name and come into it as calling, and even Jesus recognized that, I guess you might say. He was kind of stuck, Peter was, between being Peter and still being Simon Johnson. Talk about being stuck between a rock and a <laughs> hard place. That was him. Just consider the final 24 hours. There are several things we could look at for the final 24 hours of Jesus' time on earth. And you'll see someone who was by no means ready to be called a rock. At the Last Supper, Jesus comes to wash his feet. Simon responds the wrong way to this teachable moment. Twice, Jesus lets the air out of his lungs real slow and asks to straighten the brother out. Then the Lord tells Simon Johnson that he's going to deny Jesus three times. He claims to be Peter. He denies that he will deny Jesus. Jesus patiently explained that uh, Simon is going to mess up. Big time. Tells him Satan's going to sift him like wheat. Of course he does. He's Simon Johnson still. In the garden, Jesus invites Peter to pray with him while the Savior agonizes in prayer. But Simon falls asleep and Jesus wakes him up, calls him Simon, and asks him to stay and pray for just one hour. Suddenly it all kicks into gear, the kiss, the betrayal, the mob, and Simon, bravely and stupidly, grabs a sword to attack the crowd. Jesus rebukes and corrects him again. A few hours later, he denies his Lord. Caught up in a lie, trapped and scared, Peter, no, Simon, swears down curses upon himself that he never knew the man. So much for letting your yes be yes, Pete. Simon says a lie, and Peter is nowhere to be seen. Even early on that Sunday morning, Peter has been specifically told that Jesus is risen, so Pete runs to the tomb. John says, if you can call that running. <laughs> and he gets there, and he sees the grave clothes lying there, and he scratches his beard and shakes his bumpkin head, and he walks out, still not getting it. Simon, Simon. Days later, Peter is so defeated that he announces he's going back fishing. Jesus has a private conversation with him. 
Ollington, Simon Barjona, which probably stings. And he asks him if he really loves him. Three times the master asks. Same number of times that Simon had betrayed him. And it cuts him to the heart. It all makes you wonder, why have a loser like Simon Johnson serve as a special eyewitness to the most important moments in the world? He's clearly a mess up. Why have him as that inner circle of special witnesses? But I have a theory. I think Jesus let Simon see more and fail more so that his testimony of Jesus and his grace would be that much more powerful. Maybe Simon needed those eyewitness moments and those failures to strengthen him for when he really needed it. You know, he had considerable pride and confidence. By the time he'd messed up so bad, that was all gone. He was done trying to guess the ways of the Spirit, and he was humble enough to follow rather than lead. And sure enough, Simon <coughs> failed almost everything in the flesh, but it served to shape him into a powerful man of the Spirit when he needed it. Simon was out of sync on the mountain. He was out of tune on the water. He missed it in the garden and at the trial and even at the resurrection, but he got it, oh, so right, at Pentecost. That day he steps up as Peter, the rock, who is most prepared spiritually for the moment. And he is the first person in the world to piece it together and preach the gospel for the first time. He stands and starts boldly proclaiming the truth. And as he does so, Peter stands before some of those same people before whom he had sworn that he didn't know the man just 53 days before. But now the Spirit has taught Peter the profound power of repentance and of being forgiven. So he preaches it with all that he has. At the temple gate, Peter is the one who's ready to heal the paralyzed man and preach the gospel. With Cornelius, it is Peter who has the dream and the interpretation and who first brings the gospel to the Gentiles. I'm saying maybe it was all those failures were for Pete's sake. <laughs> to make him a man of faith when he needed to be. All of it for the love of Pete. What were the true names then of Legion and of Simon? Their true names were Evangelist and Shepherd. Jesus tells us something in Revelation 2.17. Let's read it together. To the one who overcomes, I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives. What is your new name? Has God given you a new name that only you and he know? There's a new name written down in glory, and it's yours. Oh, yes, it's yours. Will you recognize it because it was your secret name here on earth? Who gave you that name? Jesus will give you a new name. It's 
It's a special nickname known only to you and him. Perhaps it's already known to you. Because only you and he know what battles you've gone through in order to become an overcomer. Only you and he know what has fed your soul as deep called out to deep in the secret places of the heart. Only you and he know what crimes you committed for which he now has cast the deciding vote of a white stone of acquittal with your name on it. What does that name mean? Your new name. It's his special mark of ownership on you. The Lord Jesus Christ is giving it to you forever. You are his and he is yours. And the joy you share as you tarry there, none other has ever known. How does your name shape your eternity? It all depends, doesn't it? Are you a Christ follower? Is your name overcomer? Is your name worshiper in spirit and in truth? Is your name friend of God? Your name is up to you, I think. He's waiting to give it to you. It's your eternal destiny emerging, the eternal perspective on your life's purpose and totality of your calling. I urge you to receive your name. And uh, I want to sing a song for you. And as I'm doing it, I want you to uh, pray and ask the Lord what that new name might be. What is your name? He asked me. What is your name? What can I say? He knows the truth. I cannot lie. What is my name? You ask me. What is my name? My name is Legion. Many demons dwell here inside me. They are what guide me. My name is Simon, one who denied you. That's what defines me. That's what describes me. I am guilt for what I've done. I am shame for who I am. I am failure yesterday and today. It's still the same. That's my name. It is my past. It is my future. What is your name? I ask him. What is your name? Then you say you are the way. You are the truth. You cannot lie. I am Jesus, called the Christ. I am the living one who died. Thank you.
us, but how you see us, the way you see us.